my dad went body surfing and he drowned. And they never found his body. So now it's just me and my sister. She's my twin. Later on, we found out that my dad, he was going broke, so the bank foreclosed on the house and we had to liquidate the shop. So we lost, well, we lost everything. I guess you could say this year's been kind of a bum ride. <laughs> you won't find it by yourself. You're gonna need some help and you won't fail with me around. Come on, let's go. Hello and welcome to Pod 49, a fan discussion show where we look at uh, the show Lodge 49, the now, unfortunately, finished Lodge 49, formerly on the AMC network, now living in uh, digital perpetuity on the Hulu network in the U.S. and I believe Amazon Prime in the U.K. We are back uh, for a new season, as always, joined by Jim and Bart. Just give your quick hi, guys. What's up? And for this uh, season one remat, uh, rewatch season of Pod 49, we're going to be joined by very special guests, our guest fourth chairs. They're going to come from all walks of life in and around the show, and we are, are thrilled to have our first guests. And Jim, this is a big get for you, so why don't you lead us off and, and uh, introduce them? All right, so we've got our actor friends, Britt Rentschler and Alex Klein, both of whom appear on this episode. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Uh, my name is Alex, and I play a guy named Leo. And uh, oh, yeah, yeah, wow. no, oh. I guess that's it. There, well, there's a lot to learn about Leo, but uh, Beth is pretty straightforward. I'm Brett. I play Beth. Hi. Hello. Welcome. Hey, hey. Thank you so much for doing this, by the way. We are honored. Uh, you know, you, for for uh, Pod 49 heads out there, th- they joined us in our live panel at uh, Comic Con, where was the, the last time that anyone was allowed to do anything fun in the world. Yeah. <laughs> so true. Man, yeah. I was back to those photos the other day. It was, it was awesome. Yeah. I know. It's a different world, right? Remember being five feet away from people? That was cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even less. Yeah. Um, so they're sort of friends of the pod. So we are totally excited that you're our first fourth chair. You're a combo Woo! fourth chair. Um, but why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, what the heck, life in COVID? How have you been? Wow. <laughs> it has been such a time. I'm sure it's been true for everybody. But, you know, even rewatching the first episode to get re-familiarized before we came on the show, it's like, man, has there ever been a better time for this show? This is, I I, it, there's just so much loss and restructuring and looking for hope and looking for community in different ways. And I think that's been our journey, you know, through the first like panic and then thinking it wasn't going to last and that definitely did. And watching, you know, businesses close, um, breaking our hearts in our neighborhoods, some of our favorite places are just gone. Um, and that's, I mean, not, well, we can get into the episode later, but that's one of the things that really struck me about like Dud saying, like, I want, I'm going to get it back. And Liz is like, don't you understand that it's gone? Mm-hmm. And I, that makes me so emotional now because we really have said goodbye to a lot of things that aren't coming back on our neighborhood block that made it feel so great. But on the positive side, we've spent more time with family than ever. We've been able to spend months at a time with his parents, with my parents. Um, you know, everything slowed down to a point where there just wasn't really a whole lot of room for anything that didn't have a lot of value. 
and not just monetary value, but like real, like how are you really spending your time? I think that's been my experience. And then production shut down for a good long while. Um, and then I have to hand it to our union. They really got it figured out and handed over a list of protocols that needed to happen. So production's been up and running in various places all over. So auditions started trickling back in. I think that started to give us the feeling of it's slow, but it's not all over. Um, and you know, being on set is like being at the lodge. You're, you're like bunkered down at summer camp with your family when you're making something. So it's just even more so now that there's so many COVID protocols. So, you know, that that's, it's, it's slow, slow, but at least now steady, which is nice. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Like I've been thinking about everybody sort of has the phrase, well, there's a silver lining to all this, you know, and you're like, yeah, but the truth is, I think a lot of people are just, it's dealing with stages of grief. This has been a a super traumatic time for most of the world. And I think I started to kind of not shit on the idea of like, Oh, silver lining. You have a silver lining for this. Mm -hmm. But I think that's really important. It's been really important for me, like getting to spend time with her and my family and, and all the people I, you know, we, we went in our pods. Right. So we spent time with my parents and then her parents and it's been uh, invaluable because you'll never have that ever again. So that is a silver lining. But it's also waking up every day going like, what the fuck is next? I don't hey, know. When am I going to work <laughs> yeah. again? That yeah, would be totally. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, was fun too. Yeah, um, I kind of got, I, I've got this bad feeling that this is just kind of a, a sort of a new normal. You know, I used to think that like, oh, when we get to the other side of this, you know, we'll open again and then the restaurant will be packed because everybody's going to be so cooped up and they're going to want to, they're dying to go back out to restaurants and we'll have this, you know, this great springtime and you know there'll be lots of money to be made and now i'm just kind of like i really don't know i mean you know like i i I do agree that i love the slowdown part of it uh has been really great you know i've got to spend a lot more time with my kids and my wife and just had like much more time to just do whatever um but yeah there's this kind of a little bit of a like for me like is this just kind of gonna gel into something that's kind of like a new thing you know like are we no, just gonna don't say it <laughs> wear masks every winter double and double masks <laughs> double masks i mean who knows but well so bleak. uh on a more positive note no, I was Brit- gonna say something <laughs> lovely it's Jim. <laughs> no Britt, i wanted to ask you about uncle frank which i just watched the other night which was on what amazon prime yes yeah um and yeah, I was excited to see you in that role and just want to ask you what that was like and, and how yeah. your reaction to that movie has been. That was, um, well, I, it's been a wonderful reaction, which is great. I think it landed at a really wonderful time where, um, you know, it's a, it's a tough journey and it's a family journey. Um, but ultimately it actually has, uh, it, everything is not fixed, but there is a bit of a, of a version of a happy ending and I think that was really important to Alan Ball, especially it being a, a like a gay coming of age story. Where he's like, you know, I'd really like to write a movie where the two gay men that are in love don't die from a horrible disease or get ripped apart from each other. Like, I would love if there was a way that they could find some sort of peace with each other. So I I loved that aspect of it. Um, and then it was set in the 70s. So it was just so much fun. <laughs> You know, the costumes were amazing. The sets were amazing. The style was really delightful. And, um, you know, my aunt lived in New York City in the 70s and she left small town Alabama to go up there. And I felt like I was getting to channel 
this version of her, like her bohemian friends and like living alternative lifestyles. And, you know, I sent her pictures from set and she was so excited to see like the old yellow checkered cabs. And it was just, it was like, it was a very cool experience to share for family. Um, And then shooting, it was amazing. I mean, the cast was, these character actors are the best of the best. Like, that's it. Like you're, you know, you're working with, with Lois and Margo Martindale and yeah, Stephen Root and Judy Greer and Steve Zahn and Paul Bettany. It's like the list keeps going on. And everybody, it had that lodge feeling in the sense that, you know, nobody came to make that. When that movie was made, it was not sold to Amazon. It was not going to Sundance. It was a film that someone wrote. Someone happened to be Alan Ball, who's an amazing writer and creator. Um, so people wanted to work with him. But, you know, people weren't getting big paychecks. It was for the love of the movie and the hope that it could do something great. And then we got the news that it was going to Sundance and similar to the uh, the convention where we got to meet you guys, we actually got to go to Sundance, which was one of the last big film festivals before everything shut down. Um, and Amazon happened to like it, so they bought it, yes! And so now yes. everybody gets to see it all over the world, which is thrilling. That is amazing, yeah. And uh, Alex, yeah. what do you got? Do you have anything coming out or anything you're excited by? I do. I have a movie called uh, Lady of the Manor, actually with Judy Greer as the, mm-hmm. she's the new Samuel L. Jackson, apparently. She's in everything. Um, <laughs> she's great. I love it, her. She's so funny. She's so, and Melanie Linsky plays, it's like a buddy comedy about a ghost and a woman working at a, at an old uh, antebellum manor. And it's, it's got Melanie Linsky and uh, Judy Greer and um, Justin Long. It's directed by Justin Long and his brother, Christian Long. It's got Ryan Phillippe, Patrick Duffy. Wow. Guzman. Wow. And also yeah. I'm in it, which is cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I play Melanie Linsky's uh, kind of shithead boyfriend, which is really fun. You really, oh, how, it, it's amazing. Weird, uh, it's huh? just, this is one of the nicest guys in the world. And he just gets to play these really shitty people. I love it. <laughs> it's so fun to watch like the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde of it all. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. Well, that was like Leo. Even when we got the audition for Leo, he's like, oh, I'm auditioning for this like really kind of shitty business guy, you know? Mm. And he's like, is this, this is like my shiniest suit, right? I think this is good for the audition. <laughs> and it was actually so shiny that when we played the tape back, it was reflecting the whole time he was talking. And we were concerned that maybe, it, maybe we needed to redo it. And they were like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's do it. Let's yeah. send it off. And so, you know, shiny, shiny suit Leo. It looked like a mirror. I was like, it worked. Like an eighties music video. (laughs) That's hysterical. Um, Well, you know, I mean, the being the jerks and things is kind of like the white guy lane nowadays, right? Uh, (laughs) It it is the white guy lane, which is great. I mean, it's fun to be that guy, to be that, you know, that frat guy that used to pick on me, you know, like Mm. I'm, 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 I'm sort of bully fodder back in the day. Right. So uh, it's nice to be playing those guys kind of, I kind of do it tongue in cheek sometimes, but then sometimes you kind of lean into the, the, the real jerkiness of it all. It's fun. Like Leo, I, f- I felt sort of like Leo was playing a character and then he got caught into not playing a character by the very end. That, that's kind of how I felt. Um, Jim wrote him that way. And I felt like Jim wrote to strengths of the actor and I think I was less, I'm, Jim and I kind of got along pretty well. Like, I really think he's, obviously, I think he's brilliant. He's, this show is the best show I've ever worked on. I just, I've never had this emotional connection to a show. Oh my God, we both just cried just rewatching the first episode. To be honest with you, I think we haven't rewatched all of it. 
again, I'm even getting emotional thinking about it. Right now. It's just, it's hard. Yeah. It's so good. It's just so yeah. good. It's brilliant and thoughtful and loving. And there's not a lot of entertainment out there that's as thoughtful and, uh, and put such an energy into the collective, I think, as this show did. So thanks guys for getting us back into like watching <laughs> that first episode. I don't, yeah. you know, it was, it was tough to sit down and do it only because we feel that loss, but also to celebrate it. Like we both feel so grateful to have been a part of it. Yeah. And we sat down when we were watching, we sort of both went, oh man, <sighs> fuck. Ah, fuck, <laughs> because it's so good from the very first moments of the show. You go, yeah. I'm, I'm sure as soon as he, as, as you're talking to other people that you get on the show, there's going to be a lot of lamenting of how good the show was and fuck what, how does it, you know. But it does feel like an old friend in that yeah. way too. You know, it's like, there's a sadness because of the loss, but like the minute I heard the ocean waves begin in the first episode and Dud's just right there in Long Beach and mm-hmm. you're like, <sighs> you know, it's, I, there's such a trust in the journey that you know you're about to take, yeah. which is really nice too. Yeah, I yeah. remember thinking like uh, there how Liz calls them water people, you know, and then I <laughs> it starts with just a sh- shot of the ocean, and then that you know immediately kind of came to mind, and you know I got all warm and fuzzy too because you know we still remember everything about season two basically because that was so much more fresh in the head, and now you know going back to it, it's just like oh I wish I I you know I mean you know I've already watched it all twice you know at least. But uh, I was kind of thinking, oh, I should have done this sooner because it is. It's it's very uh, you know warm and nice to go back to, and especially when you know everything now too. So it makes it that much more. Mm-hmm. Many people. I've been I, avoiding it just because yep. of being sad. Like because it ended, I've been like, I can't rewatch it. But a lot of friends of mine have been watching it, you know, since in the past year, and um, all of them love it, and all you know, they all thank me for the recommendation, and so that's. Yeah, that's been good. That's, yeah, that's good cool. news. I'm so glad it has a home. I have experienced the same thing, especially during quarantine. People texting going, whoa, this show. And I was <laughs> like, oh, man, this show, mm-hmm. you know? And in and a lot of ways, it does, like, even watching the show, it really asks you to slow down. I think things ramp up a lot faster in season two. But season one, you really, like, it's a character study. You get to know everyone and if you're not, if you're looking for something really fast and smooth and, like, you know, Marvel or CSI, it's not it. Um, and I think a lot of people were were wanting that because you really can like tune in and tune out at the same time. But Lodge really asked you to be present with it in order to really experience the richness of it. And I think people have a lot more time to do that these days, you mm-hmm. know? That's <laughs> so weird. Yeah. Pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I um, let's transition into talking about episode one. Jim, why don't you just give us a little bit of the uh, particulars on episode one? All right. So the title of the episode is As Above, So Below, written by Jim Gavin, the show's creator. And the director was Randall Einhorn, who also directs the following episode, uh, episode two, Moments of Truth and Service. All right. And just a quick rundown of the songs. This was a song. I mean, this was a show where obviously the needle drops in the songs go a long way. And we've talked about that and the wonderful work of Thomas Patterson and Andrew Carroll. But this one was chock full of songs. Uh, We had the sound carriers there only once. Uh, Lee Hazelwood, of course, Cold Hard Times. Uh, That was the thing that prompted me to tell Bart to watch the show. Uh, Ronnie Forrester's Mystic Brew, The Sound Carrier's Hideaway, and Broadcast, who Jim has said is the spiritual godmother of the 
vibe of the show with their song, Come On, Let's Go. Um, so those are the songs if you want to check them out. So yes, let's jump into some, what are just some, you know, going back and watching the show again at episode one, what were the things that sort of just jumped out at you and start with Brit and Alex? Like what, you know, going back and watching it, what were the, the themes or the, or the big moments of the plot? Yeah, I think, I think the thing that jumped out at us that was pretty, was, was so obvious from the get go was like the parallels between Dud and, and Ernie, um, just who they are as characters, the drinking, the waking up, the, the, the path in life seems to be the exact same path in life. Ernie just happens to be, you know, 30 years older. Yeah, I had never noticed the direct parallels in scenes, but it's something that that we were picking up on and that it's like the drinking, you know, he's drinking, playing golf and uh, Dad's drinking in the apartment all during the day. And then they both have, uh, you know, the bookie. Essentially, we find out they both owe money to the same person and they're both trying to go to get a deal done to get that, to get some sort of money back. But then the one that Alex really pointed out that was amazing is they're both in their cars and that same guy comes by to give them the thing. And Dud's line is, this is a classic. And Ernie says, this is a Cadillac. <laughs> and we were like, man, even the alliteration in it, like I, I did not pick up on just how beautifully paralleled they were in construction. Yeah. That, yeah. You're totally, that's great point. Also both kind of unlucky with uh, women. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, they are. They I guess do. the homecoming dance was okay for Dud, but uh, in general. <laughs> well, I guess. We did it all right. You did all right. Yeah, okay. well, what happened? <laughs> I blew him. <laughs> <laughs> uh that's such a, I, I wow that now it makes me want to go watch it again because i wasn't even I, you could sort of feel their momentum driving mm-hmm. them towards each other but like i didn't that's a great observation i didn't put that sort of parallel tracking to it that's wow well, look crushing it right out of the gate <laughs> yeah. i felt like a test so we were gonna do well one thing i wanted to ask you guys is like you see there's there's some character traits between both dud and ernie in the beginning that are that are aggressive that don't really track throughout the rest of the show which i actually like because i think it softens them in the correct way or correct in a way that i liked but you see like ernie go out and shoot the crows and you're like does he you don't actually see him hit anything right so he just shoots in the direction of it but he's in his boxers and it's the same boxers and the shirtless outfit that dud is in when he's in his apartment and he's drinking the whiskey which you know another parallel but yeah you think about like later on when ernie is like trying to get his life together and he comes out polished and like his clothes and he like tells dud he has to leave we're talking about season two now but it's such a different way than when we first meet him he's coming out He's probably hungover. He's got a shotgun. And you're like, that's not the guy, you know? And I, what a beautiful point out to the show is that eventually he brings one of those crows inside to be his pet, you know, Mm -hmm. so you see him change. But Mm -hmm. um, it was when Dud was talking to uh, Bert. You're a parasite, Bert. My dad always said that you were the saddest, most pathetic piece of shit that he ever met. And you know what? He was right. That doesn't feel like Dud in, in some yeah. ways, but, but we're also meeting him at this really crucial time, you know? And it, the thing that she pointed out when we were watching it is like, it doesn't have any bite because it's Dud, you know? He's like, <laughs> he's like well, yes, that's what I was He's saying. like so mad at him, but he's like, not, it doesn't have, you, you, if somebody were to directly say to you, you're a piece of shit, most people would be like, that, that guy's a prick. Yeah. But with Dud, 
he just doesn't have the bite. Not why it does as an actor. God, he's incredible. But as that character, he just made that palpable. Because for our hero to say that, for is sure, like tough, yeah. Because like, as an actor, that's something you worry about. Is you're like, oh, is the audience going to hate me in the first ten minutes of the show? Like, am I going to completely alienate them because I say this horrible thing? Even though this guy isn't a pawn shop and he's clearly a piece of shit, but like saying it that way to him, and that was what I commented on. I was like, man, how like Wyatt was obviously perfectly cast, but like. They crafted that so well because you we're, we were still on his side, even though he was pretty awful. Yeah. I said palpable. I meant palatable because it's, it is like you can you go like that guy is I still like that guy could say anything pretty much. And you're still going to like that guy. And that and watching that as an actor, you go, oh, that guy can carry a show. And he did, obviously. But you go that character and the way that actor's doing that, that is a that is just through that trade. I went mm, that show can be carried by what that guy's doing. Mm-hmm. Really cool. Also, he actually. Oh, good. Oh, well, he has two moments where he's pretty mean because he's also pretty mean to the family that is in his, yeah. his house. Great and so, place. you know, he, he really, I mean, he probably, he's less like bombastically angry, but, you know, there's still the middle finger and all that. But like, well, he's got a donut in his mouth as he's <laughs> giving them the yeah. finger. And just like, you bought it, you know, like, it, he's almost, he's, yeah, yeah, he's almost darker in that scene. So there's two scenes where you're like, and there, you know, he's beating up on people that like, you know, that it's different than Bert. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, right. there's a Burton and Ernie in the show. Right. Yeah. 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 I guess you kind of see that it's, he's going through tough times and maybe you give him a break because of that, that, Oh, he's not evil. It's just not that it's necessarily justified, but you can see where it's coming from. Yeah. And you see, you fall, you fall in love with other things. So I think it gets you the benefit of the doubt, but it really did help me. I was so on Liz's side when she was worried about something that had happened to him and also like thinking that he already owed her money. Like how could she try to get, you know, even consider giving him more money to be in the lodge. But she is so worried about him because I guess that behavior is very undud-like and it's meant to be. So well-crafted because honestly, in a pilot, you have to introduce every character and make them feel completely three-dimensional in such a short amount of time. And that happens. Like we get depth from everybody mm-hmm. right away. Yeah, I um, was thinking about that, how when she says, you know, the, the, she entered the door and there was a, a cop there. And so she immediately thought he was dead, you know? And, it, and it, that concept of like, if you've ever had anybody uh, die suddenly, you know, I had a similar thing where, you know, if someone called me out of the blue, I was like, oh shit, who died now? You know, and that lasted for like six months. Mm-hmm. And so like, they've had their, they lost their father very unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. And so I could see why she would be sort of panicked. I also really loved that uh, scene. He's in the donut shop. You see her kind of pull up in the background and kind of like bumps the little uh, parking thing. And then she's like, where have you been? You know, it's very sweet and tender. And you kind of reminded just of how close they are. You know, they have their differences and they fight and they're obviously like, you know, fire and water in so many ways. Uh, but they're obviously very close too. And I, I, I really love that scene as well. Britt, what you said was one of the things that struck me rewatching this episode was they're so economical and so good at giving minor and major character an entryway. It's it it was, you know, everything from I'm I'm not gonna remember his name right now, but the Orbis employee that goes from like, you know, Gil. screw it Gil. to crying, Gil, right. You know, you know, every single character gets such an entrance. It was remarkable to see. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's, Herman, that's hard to do. Herman, who's Sam, is one of my become post show uh, has become one of my good friends, and I love him. He's just the nicest, best guy. And his Herman is—he's one of those guys where Herman is not who Sam is. Oh Sam yeah, is kind of boisterous guy yeah. has wonderful things to say. He's like super articulate, talks all the time, like talks a lot. And like Herman's kind of this big kind of, you know, Herman definitely has the softy quality. He eventually develops that softy quality. Yeah, towards, I think, as we get to know him later. But like when he's taking Ernie's TV off the wall, you know, he just looks like a guy who barely missed the NFL as an inside linebacker, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. Had a knee injury. And tough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it was great meeting him in Long Beach last year, too. Was, yeah. yeah, yeah. he's now, he's very like almost boyish and like yeah, you know, like, playful, you know, like, a you know. In, and character-wise, yeah, yeah. We are both nerds. We're comic book nerds, so like, we talk comics all the time. And he and I just kind of we kind of go back. <laughs> like a bunch of twelve-year-old boys fall out of our face. We're like, <laughs> oh my god, yeah, you, you read X Men Uncanny? It was great, right? <laughs> now, Britt, as we in this part of the episode, we we would be remiss for not talking about your classic scene in episode one. Uh, which actually does a lot of work, right? Even, you know, you get so much of what does, there's a lot of exposition in that scene that you guys do in your conversation. But then obviously with your big story arc and two, you know, I mean, for a show to plant a seed that doesn't grow for a good amount of time at that point, yeah. it was pretty, re- was pretty remarkable. And it's one of my favorite scenes in the episode. Maybe just take us through a little bit through that scene, what you kind of thought about coming into it. Did you know you were going to be making repeat appearances? No, I had no idea. Um, this was, you know, this is one of those just from start to finish, at least with the audition, you know, it came through and I had been taping something else and I felt really warmed up and I looked at it and was like, Oh, I think, I think I know who she is. I don't know anything about this show or, you know, you can't really like look at Jim hasn't done a TV show before. So sometimes you try to look at what's something else that someone's created to try to see what the tone might be. And I couldn't, you know, we didn't have a lot of time. So we actually both taped for Leo and Beth, like right away and got the tapes turned in and then heard a month later that we got it. But I just, I just tried to make some quick decisions, you know, about what I thought about him and like what I thought would be fun. And I just hope they liked it. That was it. I was like, I know nothing about this situation or this show. I didn't have the pilot. You know, when you're not auditioning for a series regular, very often you just get your scene and that's it. So I just, you know, I kind of played around and thought, well, this is fun. This is like in a fun spirit. And I, you know, kind of straddling a line between um, whether it might be a drama or a comedy, I don't really know anything. Yeah, when you don't have a pilot, you don't have tone, right? You don't know what your tone is going to be. So you're just kind of shooting in the dark. Or, you, you know, you have the, obviously the sides kind of reveal some stuff, but sometimes you don't know. Like sometimes you'll, you'll be auditioning for a show and they'll be like, do two reads. And that might be because they don't know the tone exactly of the show. It might be it might be serial comedy or or full on comedy or it might lean into drama with comedic moments and you don't know so you just kind of go all right here's a shot in the dark I hope they like what I look like and sound like yeah and I think you know with a line like yeah yeah I blew him <laughs> I was like how 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 am I going to say that like how do you say that line it can't be it can't be straightforward literal I mean I guess it could be you could give like an Aubrey Plaza delivery I don't know so that to me was the key of like finding a finding a comfortable and fun way to say that line was how I built Beth and luckily they really liked it but I mean I went in and I didn't know anything. I didn't know about really what the lodge was. I didn't know about the other ensemble characters. I knew my storyline. I knew what my job was. And 
you know, met Randall and Jim and had the most wonderful fun day on set and, you know, uh, got to know Wyatt and that, that was kind of it. And, you know, met David who played Tim, we had a super fun day and then it was over. And that was all I ever thought it was going to be, you know, I mean, he knew his was recurring. We knew that. So we were like, Oh, he is going to come back. That's going to be so fun. I have this really fun guest spot and like now I'm gone. So I, a year later when I got the email that they were bringing me back was completely shocked, more shocked when they sent me the scripts (laughs) and I saw what was happening, you know? Um, But I was way more nervous to come back because by then I was a huge fan of the show. You know, we had watched it and I had fallen in love with it and it made it way harder because I was freaking out over everything. I was like, that's Francisco's cat scratch post. And this is like, you know, it's like all the little details that you nerd out as a fan. And then all of a sudden you're in that space and it's hard not to lose your cool, you know? I'm sleeping on the couch, like even rewatching the first episode and going, oh my God, I, Beth sleeps on that couch, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> in just a little while after they get married. Like, it's just, it was a cool experience. Um, but yeah, that's, I had no idea that I was coming back and there was just so much fun and so much chemistry and I was really thrilled. But Jim was, you know, I, Nina, Jack, who's one of the producers, who's incredible, mentions to me later that the way that scene turned out was really one of the reasons that they decided to do it. So I don't know if they had plans for Beth uh, until the scene came out in a way that they felt like was interesting to them, um, which just felt like just a natural production of the way that all of our chemistry was going. Um, But, you know, Jim's tricky. Like he, like I'll let Alex talk about it, but, you know, he never knew anything about Leo. And I think (laughs) one thing they were so great at was always bringing things back, you know, finding like, all of the circles that would intersect. And sometimes they would have the idea later, but they would always keep people in mind, I think, with the idea that there's so much richness to the callbacks and to the interweaving of things. And I think some things were planned and I think some things they developed on the spot, but it's because they were so mindful of what the payoff would be by by continuing to weave those fabrics into each other. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think Jim created you know, the, the tapestry of what this show was. There's a lot of he didn't know all the answers. I know that for sure. Jim didn't seem to have all the answers right away. Um, but he had created such an intricate tapestry of these things that we could play. Like I would joke around with Jim. I'd be like, I totally get, thank you so much for this deluge of information. I know exactly who Leo is. I will have no <laughs> troubles. Um, and, but the truth is he didn't know exactly what was going on, but he had created a framework that worked so well that the development of it, I felt, was natural with everybody, with everybody. When I watched actually her scene again, I was like, oh, that woman seems like she's gonna be on the show uh, way more. I just felt that just by the interaction, whatever the energy was. And obviously I have, you know, the hindsight of, I saw her in the episodes, but it just felt like the energy was building up to, oh, that's gonna be another character. And then, you know, Jim obviously did, orchestrate a lot of things because I'm in the first episode. There's a little moment where I'm in the first episode with a uh, laser pointer. And, uh, and it's a moment where they pan to, and that was a very important part that uh, Randall wanted to get perfectly. He wanted it timed perfectly. So obviously the, 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 the scene had been set. And uh, I think Jim extrapolated off of that first episode really, really well. Well, uh, you're a pro. 
Alex, for taking us into our transition, into our small moments. So the little small moments there. Uh, And so I'll tag it off to Jim, because Jim, that was actually what Alex was talking about was your small moment. So why don't you uh, tie it together for us? All right, yeah. So I had to bring this up again, because when we first uh, started this podcast, we did two episodes recapping season one and rewatched, you know, I I rewatched this episode um, once or maybe even twice and picked up on this thing that I hadn't the first time around, which then happened with so many other things mm-hmm. throughout so many episodes, rewatching and, and knowing what was going to happen later. What happened in, in that scene was Dud is sitting in Donuts, and Alice asks him, how are you going to pay back your sister? You know, and then he, he comes back to that theme of 3,000 years that he had, you know, believed that this Native American tribe lived there for 3,000 years. All they did was chill out and fish or whatever. Three thousand years, Alice. Three thousand years. You don't have to live like this. Gotta be another way. And then we've got Alex and the other gentleman sitting right behind him, two booths over, turning around, hearing that, and then in later episodes in that season turning it into a marketing slogan for the redevelopment of Orbis. Great catch. That's exactly what happens. That's exactly so, what, yeah. yeah. So so what so was it presented to you that way? Like did you know that that how it was going to come back and Absolutely not. Absolutely okay. not. No. <laughs> I just knew that I had to turn my head during the queue of there has to be a better way. And it's almost like the guy goes, "Oh yeah, let's write that down." I was really drawing a dick on a piece of paper, but it's <laughs> 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 framed on our wall actually. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, there was no, there was no information regarding because that was my first day on set, and we had zero understanding of what our characters were going to be or become. I just knew I auditioned with certain lines, and I was kind of this you know fast talking, sh- sort of jerky young guy, trust fund guy. You know, it was the mm-hmm. uh, basket scene. That was his audition. Was the right. the basket mm-hmm. scene, okay. the scene? Yeah, right. Okay. And so. Uh, that's the, all the information I had to go off of, which was not much regarding who this character was or what his agenda was. Yeah. Right, right. And yeah, it's just so subtle though here in this episode that it's, I, I would say it's almost impossible to notice the first time or if you're not looking forward to it, because Dud is the focus of that moment. Yes. So like, and that moment feels to be tied to another narrative, but that's yeah. what I think is so gorgeous about you guys going back and digging through the show is that, it, and it is, it is part of his narrative. And yet it is also, and it's just back to that seen and unseen, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always more than one thing in this show, which I love. Yeah. And, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, Dud is saying this like beautiful thing, there's got to be a better way or whatever. And then he would be like the above part. And then the below is like, you know, taking that uh, phrase and then turning, you know, and co-opting it into like a, a PR, you know, selling point on a new... Yeah division getting built or, or whatever, mm. you know, like what, uh, whatever captain's working on, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of funny because I noticed that when you like turn and hear it and then it's almost like you look and you start to write it down almost like as if you guys have been trying to figure out what is our slogan going to be and you're like, oh, perfect. We'll steal it from this guy. It that's was just a good catch. Okay. We did that well then because that's exactly what our agenda was. Yeah. You're like, oh, there it is. We found it. All right, let's write it down. Let's talk. Right, let's it. steal it. Yeah, exactly. You know, immediately. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very sweet and tender thing to say. Let's steal it, you know, <laughs> and pervert it. 
Spin it into gold. Yeah. 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 Uh, there you go. Yeah, there's the alchemy. Uh, Bart, what was your favorite kind of small, you know, seemingly throwaway moment, but not really? Um, I like the part that I'd kind of forgotten about when uh, Dud is talking about why he wants to join the lodge. And he, he remembers going to this yard sale where he sees a mirror on the ground in the grass. And so when he looks at it, he felt like he was looking into the earth and then he just wanted to sort of jump in. And, you know, I just sort of, I don't know, I just really love that part. It kind of reminds, I remember in season two when um, Connie, like, is walking in the graveyard and she sort of falls into the graveyard. And I remember kind of at the time thinking, like, that was a connection to Dud's uh, looking in through the, you know, through the earth. And then there's also just the whole thing of, like, going in, you know, uh, of the lodge going into, like, the Middle Earth or whatever. And so having known all these things from watching the whole thing and then going back and seeing it kind of reminded me just how significant that scene was. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I don't know. I really, I really love that idea of kind of that being all like a whole into like a whole nother world. Now I've and, forgotten exactly, exactly what it is, but I know that Jim set up each season. They were hoping to have four seasons and each season was going to be an element. And mm-hmm. I, I believe we started with water which is, you know, even all the blues in the ocean and and the mirror even like looking like water that you could go into. But love that you brought up Connie because the second season might have been Earth. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. her falling through and the Earth elements. Right. Yeah. I'm making all of that up. But I know for sure that each season was supposed to be an element that they were. I mean, yeah, kind of remarkable. That's one of my favorite things about the show is because you can dive into that stuff. And then you also kind of can, you could miss it and still love the show just based on its human qualities. And I think that's why it's so special. I think it's partly why we all love it so much. Yeah. Can we talk about for a second, one thing I wrote down in my notes was like, and they don't, I don't think this keeps up through the rest of the uh, episodes, the rest of the seasons, but they go out of the, Dud is ugly in this. Like, I'm like, because it's hard to make Riot Russell not hot, right? So like... <laughs> Like you got to really work at it. Like so, I was like, "Well, they really captured a certain grungy." Like they really scruffed him up in this episode. Like because it's another way to set where he's at in life and all of that. But I'm like, you know, hats off to the to the makeup and and uh, you know styling people because you know they they Lighting. definitely took away some w- Russell hotness. Yeah, I was thinking that when when he the scene before Brit scene when he is falling asleep or about to by himself in that apartment. He's sort of slumped over and just, he's just looking and sort of sad and, and schlubby. And I had those same thoughts. It's like, obviously he's a very beautiful man, but like, <laughs> definitely like the goal was to like, kind of make, you know, really show how just rough of a situation he was. Yeah, how's and, he going through something? Yeah. Even the hole, the hole in his shirt, when they mirror the Dudley and son sign mm-hmm. to his shirt and there's the hole in it. And you're just like, Oh man, this guy needs a new wardrobe, you know? Yeah. Great. What was your favorite kind of, you know, character beat or small moment in the episode? Uh, my favorite from the very start has been when Liz lights the sink on fire. Mm. Yeah. I, I can't. <laughs> Like there has never been a better way to show exa- like so much about a human being in one moment. And it's so casual and Sonia does it so perfectly. Like that is just like when she, I mean, when I first watched the show, I was like, are you kidding me? That is brilliant. She's crazy. And she is, and she isn't, you know, which is that great duality that they all have. But to me, that's, um, 
That's definitely when she lights that on fire. It just that like, doesn't even ask her what she's doing. Right. No, just kind of like and that's the over. brother and sister relationship. Yeah. Yes, and then they just go right to the couch and they're like watching the thing about home improvements. You know, <laughs> what was she burning? I was wondering that. I I forgot about that, and then I was watching it, and I was like, "What is she burning?" And then they never say anything about it. They never say. No. She's like, Ch-ch-ch. "Oh, okay." So I didn't miss something. I just thought. And no. every time I'm like, I don't know exactly what's happening there, but that's okay. It's just. <laughs> It's got to be like um, a bill from the bank or something, right? Something Probably. Like Maybe the yeah. mail. <laughs> yeah, something from the mail. I have like little things that I noticed this time that I didn't notice before that I, I'm excited about. But one of them was actually the, you know, so we mentioned the scene where he's in the apartment and then he goes on. Uh, Jim, you're talking about him talking about the, the tribes and the, like the 30,000 mm-hmm. years. That uh, he has the Native Tribes of Southern California book in his bag. When he's, ah, uh, I didn't notice okay. that. I did not notice that either. Yeah. Yep. And that was something that I actually remembered from that day shooting because I was like, "Oh, what books does Dud read?" And I was like, "Oh, Native Tribes of Southern California." Okay. And then, not until I actually rewatched it did I remember why that was a part of the plot. That's a good catch. My favorite moment that's sort of like, you know, and this is a, you know, the show's so funny and they're not throwaways, you know, I, I would never insult the makers of the show by saying that they're throwaways by design, but they feel like almost like kind of like side jokes and little things, mm-hmm. you know, the, the confusion between Arturo, the carpet guy and Dud, that is such a funny running gag. I mean, that, that gag pays off like four times. There's four <laughs> punchlines to that gag. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the initial mislead where he's like, I got this this kid. Yeah. Like, all right, cool. Yeah, yeah. And there's also what Larry says about this kid, teach him all the things you know or something like that. And you're like, all right. This there's is this be- kid that's coming tomorrow. Teach him everything he needs to know. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And and Ernie like likes industry, you know, like it's so, you know the sort of Dud and, and Ernie contrast and connectivity because it's like he can't wait to tell everyone about this industrious kid. He's got his own business. He's the kind we need, right? We need, you know, like because a part of the lodge is everyone's kind of like you know kind of industry connections and whatever. Uh, and then you know th- then he also met with this kid that he thought was a total you know loser waste you know like whatever he's not. What does he says? He's not showing up. I guarantee he's not showing up or whatever. But Arturo, you know. Sure. He'll be here. Yeah. But, that, but also the really key moment when they meet and Ernie says, I've been waiting for you. Mm-hmm. And Doug goes, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he's like, you're here to clean the garbage, right? But like, you know, ultimately as the series progresses, of course he was not knowing it. He was waiting for him. Yeah. I, do. I, have, I have one more that I forgot that I really wanted to share because it was something that stuck out to me because it does feel like such a throwaway moment because Bert can feel like such a, uh, you know, you think he's a stock character and you're like, oh, I know what this guy's about. But I wrote it down. He says, It's not real gold. What? Really? Someday you'll know the difference. And it's like so fast. And it, you just think it's part of the dialogue. And you're like, oh my God, that's everything. Yeah. It's not real gold. Sometime, someday you'll know the difference. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, that, that's yeah. a good line. All right, now, Britt gave us a, a little bit of a hint, but now this is the section of our season one rematch, rewatch. Why do I keep saying rematch? Rewatch, <laughs> where, where we're going to go deep into the lore. We're going to discern, we're going to decode the secrets of the scrolls that appear to us in episode one. And it's a good note time to say, this is for the completest, people that have seen everything that want to go deep. If you don't want to be spoiled, 
Um, if you want to kind of enjoy it on a week to week basis and then listen to us, you can go back and listen to our season one recap. And then our, we have a recaps of every episode of season two, but this we're going to draw on everything within the world. So you're, you've been warned on deep spoilers here. So let's get into it. The secret of the scrolls. What were some of the mysteries that we uncovered in this episode. Britt, you seem chomping at the bit here. So I'll pass the talking stick to you. Oh my gosh. No, I was just getting very excited to see what all of you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, who, right. someone else can jump in. I'll, Jim. I'll go. I'll go. Okay. So first of all, and I don't think I ever bothered to figure this out before. And it's, I guess maybe it's obvious. It wasn't to me, but the inscription on the ring, superis sic et inferis is as above, so below. Yeah. So that's our, that's one like key thing. Another one was for me, the kind of the biggest thing that I, I did not, I had never noticed before um, and really stuck out to me was when Dud is in Donuts and he's reading this Lynx lore. The Lynx has powerful vision, so powerful it can see through walls. Yeah, right. Well, no, what I meant is that that's what people thought in the Middle Ages. You know, things were a little different back then. And that, you know, calls forward to when Connie has the blindfold on and she is in some little room or closet and she's seeing as though out through that door that Dud eventually falls through and mm-hmm. sees this city of gold out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was her link's vision. Literally what's behind the wall when we first find the secret room. Right. Yeah. Right? Right, right, right. Yep. Being able to see through. Also, Dud goes up to the wall, I mean, to the door, and he can see through the doors, too. He's like, yes. he's like the throne I feel like room. I've been here before, right? That's right, the throne, the room, throne room, too. Yeah. 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 Good yeah, one, Jim. Mo- okay, what else? Who else has got something? I have one. I'll jump in while you guys get ready, because I got this one took a little bit of research. So, um, and I'm going to do a read. I'm going to do dramatic reading. Um, <laughs> the So, at one point, I think it's in the lodge. The camera goes and it it focuses on the fool uh, tarot card while he's peeing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so you see that, and it's very, it's very, you know, it's no subtext, right? Boom. Mm-hmm. So uh, my my wife and I do very very small dabbling in tarot, and we have a new book uh, that we've been looking at called Modern Tarot by a Michelle T. And this kind of like you know, magical realism and like kind of mundane occult is definitely a theme of the show. So I went to that and I, this, this so the fool. So I'll give us a little, uh, I'll, I'll read the introduction to the fool. So um, the fool's card. And when you draw it means you're at the start of a terrific journey ahead lies all potential, the highest highs of love, money, career, and intellect, and the lowest lows of despair, destruction, loneliness, and devastation. The fool, likes, like all of us in our lives, will experience it all and in due time. But right now, we prepare to set off on our path. It is all joy and optimism, a feeling in our gut that we are doing the right thing, that we'll find the right way, that we'll find our people, people our calling, our love, and our fortune. This sense of limitless possibility of implicit permission to take wild leaps into the unknown is what the fool card represents. Oh. So I just thought that was a pretty cool little, like, you know, I mean, like I said, it's not subtle, right? Like, like you say, you know, P, boom, and like, you know, two second hang on the right. fool's card of, yep. of the tarot. And, boom, you know, it was like, 
and I just, you know, kind of read that chapter. I just read the chapter on the fool. So mm-hmm. I was like, boom, went back to it. I was like, wow, there it is. You know, there's the, there's the kind of like subtle introduction to the whole quest. And also the, 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 I guess there's the tiles that line the urinal. I don't know if you could read. I, I wasn't sure if that was cuneiform or if the, that was some sort of hier- hieroglyphic. I couldn't tell. But there is like, an Egypt book on the table with yep. that's, and, that's yeah. yeah that was so the that and then it looks like maybe those were similar symbols. I wasn't sure exactly what that you did more research than we did, but <laughs> um, yeah. So that seems to be connected too. But I love that. I mean, Dud is the fool at the beginning of his journey. It's so perfect. Mm-hmm. Who else? Who else has got some decipher the secrets of the scrolls for us? I've got some, maybe I would call it foreshadowing. I don't know that it was deciphering anything, but I did catch um, in the beginning when Blaze was selling weed to the kid that he doesn't take Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. Totally. That's a big thing later on, which I love. That's so cool. And then Beth says to him, Last I heard, you had moved to Mexico and you were surfing. Uh, No, no, no. I took a trip to Nicaragua. Um, It it didn't stay for very long, though. It was... Yeah, somebody told me that you got attacked by a shark. A shark, I wish. And then he gets bit by a shark. In season two. Mm -hmm. And he goes to Mexico. And he goes to Mexico. So she's (laughs) like, oh, she was just psychically confused about the information she was getting from him because obviously whatever their weird connection was, like there's there's something entangled between that, right? Um, so I thought that was cool. You know, they're both people who mix up messages. So. It feels like a time <laughs> show is on a time loop. Like there's converging timelines. I know that sounds a little, but also when we see the plane fly over dead, he goes, whoa, you know, I feel like that's the plane with. with we wrote that yeah, down for right. sure. It was like, whoa, that's like something in season two that right, we're going to see with the yeah. jumping out yeah. of the plane and it crashing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I didn't understand. Like, it, I guess there's no airport nearby. That's why it would be such mm-hmm. a weird thing for him. There to is witness. actually Long Beach. There yeah, is. We flew into Long Beach. Remember, Bart? Well, no, but I, I yes, but I mean, uh, I mean, I wouldn't remember the geography of where Dud is in Long Beach, but I guess it's kind yeah. of small enough. But it's, I, I so because yeah. so, it was so low it was so right, low yeah, it seemed like it was right yeah. above him yeah. um which that is when you're like driving right into lax too and the planes are coming right down like even though you've done it many times like it still can be pretty shocking sometimes and you're just like oh what yeah <laughs> yeah and then, I, you know but I, yeah it just was like he lived there his whole life i wouldn't it would be i don't know yeah why would that shock him unless yeah right that's that's what i felt then there was that so liz makes that comment the next day like the last jupiter flew out and then i was like was it supposed to be that it was flying out from long beach airport or from orbits itself somehow and maybe that's what was weird about it but i don't know i think it's the latter i think it was like you know the destruction and 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 exiting of the orbis so like you know those whether they're being sold or taken somewhere else to repurposed or taken around for parts like all yeah. the stuff was leaving orbis so i assume i kind of did assume it was from okay. a orbit landing strip or whatever yeah that makes sense i buy that i bet you know what is so great about the show is that it could be all of those things yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Only if we've gotten season three and four a circular timeline and also the literal orbis like it could it's all of those things right probably but just from an acting perspective, I loved his reaction. I loved his reaction to that to that Funny, plane. It? So <laughs> it's good. like it's like the, he does fear really well. Like when the snake's coming, when mm-hmm. he's seeing the snake come up to the, um, he does fear really well. I mean, he does pretty much. I haven't seen anything Wyatt Russell do that I'm like, no, nah, that wasn't real. Mm-hmm. He's just an incredible actor, and that yeah, yeah. 
And when the plane flies, it's just, it's so funny. It's, it's a, it's a, almost like you catch yourself with how scared you are. You, Whoa. It's so <laughs> funny. I have to say, I was just reading and, and that he's playing, I don't remember the character, but he's, he's playing a governmental human conditioned war machine in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier Marvel yeah. series. I'm yeah. like, oh, that'll be an interesting turn for Wyatt Russell to be like a G-Man robotic governmental killing machine. That's a little yeah. odd character. Well, and Good Lord Bird, too. Yeah, I, yeah, I just watched not, that. I think I haven't seen it yet, but I remember auditioning for it and seeing his name on there. And I he, he's a villain in it, isn't he? Well, he's Jeb Stewart, a con- future Confederate general. Yeah, uh, it's actually he plays. It's interesting because at that point he's just a union officer he's working yeah. for Robert E. Lee. So in the you know he's in the U.S. Army, um, and he has like a weird affection. He is chasing John Brown in Kansas, and he's back chasing him in Harper's Ferry. So there's a little cat and mouse. But he actually he actually gives him a few opportunities to escape. So it's a little bit like he's not a pure oh, villain. Complicated. Yeah, yeah. It's it, even and it's not a huge role, but it, yeah, it's not it's not like. It is a little complicated. Well, have you guys seen Overlord? No. No, it's on my list. I keep meaning to watch it. Oh, he's so good in it. He's like this hardened like sergeant. And you're like, this guy's great. This guy can do it all. And he's not, you don't get any, huh. it's just like a, a severe soldier. And you're like, this guy can do it. And he's yeah. great in that. And like, as John, I think the character is named John Walker. It's U.S. agent. That's the character he's going to play. He's kind of right. like, he's like a dime store Captain America in the comics. Yeah. And so I think he's 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 proposed to be the replacement version of Captain America as far as right. one that can be controlled, not like a right. man of his own convictions like Steve right. Rogers. Exactly. Exactly. Anybody else have some, you know, decoding or foreshadowing they picked so, up in this episode? So I do want to say there that just realizing there's so many things woven into everything in the show and there's, you know, lots of symbolism that I don't pick up on and probably like other people online have um, explored in, in detail and that I just haven't exposed myself to. Like there's a scene when, I guess it's when, I think it's when Doug shows up at the lodge, like Ernie is wearing this shirt with this pattern. And I was like, is this pattern symbolic? Like what are the things on his shirt? <laughs> and there's like these little guitars or uh, stringed instruments kind of looking shapes. And then there's this thing that looks like two jet planes. I'm like, is that like Orbis? And then these sort of two rings thing, like it's like, is it infinity? Is it rings? I'm like, it's probably just a shirt, but I find myself like trying to read into it you all. Know what? Like, no, with Carol Cutshaw doing the yeah. costume design, everything. Yeah. I guarantee you she picked it because of, of that. All the, yeah. With her, nothing, nothing. was nearly. All right. Obviously, she and Jim worked super uh, um, closely on, on the costume design stuff. Um, and everything she did was very, very well curated. And I wouldn't be surprised if every costume piece had me, you know, mm-hmm. she's just, she was a genius. A show full of geniuses. Really? Yeah. Every, in every department, everybody. Mm-hmm. I think it's safe to give them the assumption of the doubt when it comes to intentional uh, things, when it comes to any part of the <laughs> right, show, right. really. So, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, one other thing I wanted to say, I, f- I forgot. This always makes me laugh every time I watch it. Just a very small moment when, you know, Scott's like, this is my band. You should come see us play. And Doug goes, oh, so you're done, Fab? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> so That's great. really funny. <laughs> so great. 
<laughs> I also like that little when he's like talking to Ernie about joining the lodge, and he says, uh, "You know, Ernie says, well, you could be a deadbeat or a creep, you know, a psycho, like, <laughs> I'm, or a psycho." He's like, "Well, not a psycho. <laughs> it might be a deadbeat." Yeah. <laughs> 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 um yeah. the chess have you guys i mean i don't know if this is decoding anything but the chess players did the chess players change throughout the show I th- that was the story that carol was telling me when i came back for season two which is that they had those two guys uh placed and they were backgrounds you know so it's it's less um it's not a contract that they're on they can be there or not but they did have them coming in and then we started season two. They called them to come back because they had been so consistent. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the guys said, well, I can't do it, but my twin brother can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And so they kept right. him and the other guy wow. as like consistent chess players, but actually one of them switched out. But like, that's what Carol will call Lodgy. She'd be like, oh, that's so Lodgy. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. stuff like that would happen <laughs> all the time. She's like, like, your twin brother? Okay, great. This is amazing. <laughs> You know, because they do try to keep, they would try to keep things consistent in a certain way if they had set something up. Um, but that's just the level of detail, you know. And, and you know, one of the things about the show is like, I feel like the show is about serendipity in a lot of ways, right? And I feel like that was on on what you saw on camera, but also on set, there was a lot of things that just seemed, wow, that was really auspicious. That dovetailed into that. That's crazy. But that felt like the entire energy of the show it threw out, which was miraculous to me to mm. be on a set and be having these things that seemed like this went into this and this fed into that. And I think for the producers and people who ran the show, it was the same feeling. It was just, it was a, it felt like a miracle. Yeah. Those wonderful little moments where it's like, you know, I, <laughs> uh, it was actually Linda. I didn't know I was going to get my hand nailed to the wall in season two. Um, we've already made the spoiler announcement, but um, I had the episode before I had that speech with Liz where I said, you know, I just don't want to get nailed down in the wrong yeah. place. <laughs> and I had no idea. And it was that day I was shooting that scene and I'd already done that monologue. And then Linda came in. She's the most wonderful. I, everybody was wonderful, but she comes in. She's like, hi, I haven't met you before. Before. I'm so excited to like spend time with you. Oh my God, your episodes. It's so great. She's like, I can't believe the nail gun. That's going to be so crazy. And I was like, uh, yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. So nice to meet you. So excited. And then I went to Jim and I was like, Linda said something about a nail. What are we? And he was like, damn it. She always does that. <laughs> Cause she had read the next episode and I hadn't seen it God. yet, but he would want like purposely for me not to put anything on that line yeah. because that wasn't what they were trying to do. They were really trying to keep it very innocent and very fresh um, mm-hmm. even to the actors a lot of the time, because you know, you should, you shouldn't notice it. it. It should strike you later. And I think that's the, the subtle, the subtle mystery of it all, mm-hmm. you know? So how much did they shoot in sequential order uh, of the show? And did, did they do that in te- like, because usually they would just shoot whenever they need to, right? And yeah, but unless you're trying for that specific, you know, since this does have things that are revealed later, there might be a reason to just try to go as sequentially as possible in terms of yeah. trying to get. We cross ported episodes. I, I think it was just a more efficient way to do it. Um, but I do think that they placed, so you'd have two directors sometimes at the same time. Usually every director would do two episodes, but sometimes if the two episodes were cross-boarded, it was somebody's first and somebody's second. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be there at the same time. So you go back and forth. Like, so for instance, when we were shooting, um, 
one of the episodes where I think it was when we were married, we were cross boarding with uh, Alethea's episode um, with the time flashbacks. Mm-hmm. So it was like, we were going back and forth between that and different days. So you could manage to, to have an episode where you didn't know it was happening in the next episode, but then like later that week, you would because mm-hmm. you would shoot a scene from that. But I think they were pretty, they were trying to be efficient with the crossboarding, but they were pretty careful about trying to keep some things under wraps just for the sake of, like I said, like not affecting anything in a way that mm-hmm. I feel like when you do watch TV or a movie and someone hits you over the head with something, it loses its power. You're like, sure. uh, you feel a little manipulated, I think, as the mm-hmm. audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was nice that they never made an attempt to try to do that, even as far as like not telling the actors everything, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, also, there's, there's something that, you know, that, that balances the mundane and the magical, right? right? Just, just, and so like something like kind of a, like, na- you know, I don't want to be nailed down, right? A relative cliche that takes on this whole like alternative meeting, like that whole, like, you know, we always look for magic in these like, you know, fantastical realms and then miss it in the mundane, which I think is a, theme of the show so i love how they'll circle on even on something like that like playing with a cliche or the, that kind of thing like yes. that's that, where it comes shows up that thing we talked about like between different characters having different relationships like you know i beth had that weird premonition about was it a shark no it was a snake oh then it actually ends up being a shark then we end up with this connection and we end up married and and then we had the i didn't want to get me all down in the wrong place and what i loved about that thing where my hand was nailed to the wall as we just look at each other and I go, okay. And it's like, we both get it. We've both been trying to do something that we shouldn't have been doing, but we needed different things. But there was that moment of like, this is where we finally, like we were doing what we needed to do with each other for a certain time. And there's just this understanding. And I think that's where the writing is so beautiful in that way of like, that is the physical manifestation of something I said, because things that he and I said to each other became physical manifestations. Mm-hmm. That was the nature of that relationship. And everyone had different dynamics in that way where things would come, like you said, like the mundane and the magical, it's a mundane phrase. It became real because it was exchanged in a certain way between certain characters, you know? Yeah. Words become things that happens mm-hmm. in the show a lot. Yeah. All right. We're going to go to our, our, you know, uh, a, a feature of our original podcast that we're keeping Keeping going, and that is our alchemist of the week. So this is, you know, basically who won the week or version of that, who was who was our individual all-star uh, and tying it to the alchemist archetype that drives the show. Who would like to jump in? Who's chomp? Uh, Alex, jump I, on it. I think um, this is a, obvious. I think every week you must go like, this is the hardest thing in the world. This is the hardest part about the show because everybody does such an amazing job. But I thought Bert... Bert for me um, is he's just such a great character and forgive me. I can't remember the actor's name, but he did from the first episode on he, that character is so lived in. There's never a shred that guy. He's just kind of like stewing in that character. And I think the things he says to Dud are he's, he's not a bad person. He's almost, there's almost a fatherly figure about Bert to Dud, even though Dud has this like antagonistic relationship with it. He found us at the beach. Yep. That's a lynx ring. You have to be a lynx to get one. Wow. How about that? What's a lynx? They're a fraternal order like the Masons of the Oaks. The Masons of the Oaks. All right. All right. So what's it worth? Nothing. Bird is never harsh to death. 
Dud does it to himself and he winds himself up. But like the way Bert is, I, I just think he's, he just popped to me about we, that. episode. We find out like in season two, he's got kind of a soft spot for the whole family. Right. Cause he's yeah, like, yeah, right. the watch was actually not worth anything, but he needed the money. So I took them, mm-hmm. you know, so, but yeah. Uh, Joe Grafasi. Yeah. That's it. Joe Grafasi. Joe, well, we thanks. love your work. Yeah. yeah thanks. I'll jump in. Uh, not because I meant to go second, but because mine was Bert as well. So ah. I'll, I'll riff off Alex uh, for all the same things you said. And there was the moment where when he looks at the ring and he says, this is ju- it's a reverse alchemy, right? Because it's like, you know, well, no, that's like whatever. Who cares? It's junk metal that he then imbibes with the quality that eventually spins itself into gold for Dud. And so he gives him that he kind of does that unlocking for him, you know, Dud thinks he's got something that's worth something. He crashes that idea that, you know, it's actually, you know, whatever, copper or pewter or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then you know, it's a slow build. It doesn't happen right away. But he actually has that alchemical reaction where he takes the junk metal, imbibes it with value, and, and gives Dud the ticket forward. So building off what you said, Alex, that's, uh, um, Bert was my alchemist of the week as well. I love it. Who's next? My pick was i think a little offbeat um but it struck me this time that connie is doing something kind of special and magical by keeping these two relationships afloat at the same time and sometimes with the two people in the same place at the same time um and we know later that it all unravels but when we're just first introduced to it here and to her she seems relatively happy and she's at ease with both Ernie when they're together and then with Scott when they're in the lodge and they're what they're playing cards or whatever or playing a game. That stood out to me this time that, oh, in this moment, Connie is making this work. These, you know, she's made space in her life for loving these two people, no matter what happens later. <laughs> you know, it's it's right now, it's like, oh, she seems to kind of have it together in a way that some of these other characters don't, even though it's dangerous, you know, it's dangerous and it eventually blows up in her face, but you know. Yeah, no, I love that. And I also think to piggyback off of that, that's not my pick, but I respect your choice. And I think that there's something interesting about the fact that they have taken what was a horrible story for the two of them, she and Ernie back in the day, not being allowed to be together from all these family and societal pressures and saying, we're reclaiming this. Like we're, you know, he says, you walked back into my life. And I think she is, they are both doing something together where they're turning a real shit situation into a golden opportunity to fulfill that destiny that they had with each other, that like real love that they found and value in each other. Mm-hmm. I think they both feel very valued by each other. Yeah, yeah. Love, that. Sure. love it. All right, Britt, who's your alchemist of the week? Okay, so Blaze is my alchemist of the week. I love him so much, um, quite literally, because he gives Ernie uh, the, uh, the uh, what does he call it? The earth, wind, and fire for his cat. <laughs> he gives him the literal ointment, so he is literally an alchemist in helping the kitty cat, which I love. And um, I also feel like along those same lines of value, you know, 
uh, he first meets, Dud first meets Ernie at the lodge, but it's really Blaze is the first person he encounters when he like wears his shitty little button down or like button up shirt with his blazer and he's like trying to fit in and he walks in and the first person he sees at the bar is Blaze and Blaze just like welcomes him. Doesn't matter that he's not Arturo. <laughs> he's like gives them a beer and then he gives them the seen and unseen man. Mm-hmm. He's like, if you just, and then he also gives them, he's like, oh, just wait till Larry's drunk. You'll get in. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like he is the first person who really says, Hey man, the doors are wide open. And he kind of spends why uh, Wyatt's uh, who is dead. They're synonymous. Um, his, his sense of purpose, I think, starts to get spun and that minute, that feeling of belonging is really, I think that thread really starts with Blaze to me. Yeah. I love that. Great I also, it was great to see, you know, especially with season two, more in our, at least our minds in terms of it being, you know, the season we watched more recently, et cetera, et cetera. Is he such a heavy arc in season two? So there was a lightness about him in this episode that just felt, I don't know. It was like, you know, kind of full circle. It was like, it felt like, I don't know. It was sort of healing to see him as a lighter moment. Yes, it really was. And when they're talking about the paintings, I just see, I got the feeling that Blaze could just walk right through them already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's really like a, in a good place in that first episode, he's making a sale. So he's got like, you know, money coming in from his like, you know, pot selling business He's making the medicine for the cat, you know, so that makes him feel good about himself. He's always down about it. he's not a real doctor or what have you. Yes. And it's like in this very first episode, he just is like where, where when he's he's like at his best, you know, like he's not he's not worried about anything else. Things are going very well for him. I agree. I love I love I mean, I got a soft spot for Blaze also just as the bartender, because um, mm-hmm. I think that that's a very unique role of like welcoming people and kind of being the um, magnanimous host sort of thing. And um, you know, and he's, he is, he's like, he's the only, he's not, he's like kind of out of the joke uh, about Arturo and, and Dud. And so he does, he just sort of welcomes him in. And then later he's, he's kind of honest about it when he's like, well, I don't like it when people do that, you know, like when he's <laughs> like, so should I do that? And he's like, or will people not like it if I do that? He's like, well, I won't or something like something yeah. to that extent, you know? And, and he's like, well, that's what I want to do. You know, I want to, I want to do it the, you know, through the quest. The right way. The right way. The so, right way, exactly. Yeah, we see a very confident uh, Blaze. It's really kind of nice. Um, I, I agree. Is that um, yours? Huh? Is Blaze yours also? No, I just, I was thinking, I was kind of debating it. I was kind of going back and forth. I, I didn't, you know, I went with Larry Loomis this time around. Oh, because, that, uh, you know, yes. I respect everyone's choices. Because, yeah, he, uh, you know, you sort of almost forget he dies in season one. So you kind of almost forget about him towards the end. You kind of forget about how significant he is uh, because of course, in the beginning, you don't always know these things that they're kind of hinting at, but that when he's getting uh, pulled away in the, the stretcher the first time and he's like, Oh, that kid is coming tomorrow. You got to show him around, you know, you kind of realize how significant that is. You know, when I watched the, need to teach him what he needs to know. That's right. Huge. Right. And then he's, you know, and then he's like, I'm back, you know, and he gets back from the hospital and they're like, hey, and everybody's drinking. And then, of course, he's like, and then Dud gives this, you know, really, like, you know, sad speech, you know, that's very heartwarming and stuff. And he just like punches him right at the end of it. You know, it's just such a great moment. And then has like a stroke right or another heart attack right after that. And um, and again, kind of forgets what he's talking. Like, I like how when he's on the stretcher both times, like the first time he just takes his mask off. And then the second time he's like, who did I punch? Like, what do you mean punch somebody? He doesn't even remember what happened five seconds ago. And so he's kind of this, um, you know, this very intuitive 
sort of uh, beacon almost, you know, that the lodge kind of like shines out of that he doesn't even have that much control over. And I think that there's obviously something about the um, passing of the torch where like, I think the reason why he punches them in some way, it's almost like he's, it's like uh, pulling the girl's pigtail when you have a crush on her when you're three, you don't really know why you're doing it. But like this, he's like seeing his replacement in front of him and he just like, there's not much he can do. He just, so he just reacts and sort of it's punches like- him. I love yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There is because he you can see during the speech that he's very sort of moved by it. And mm-hmm. it's only when you know that he's gonna punch him that you can kind of look into it and sort of say, like he's kind of also seeing the writing on the wall. You know, there's almost like a fear to it as well. Like as if like you know, if this is my replacement, does that mean I'm on my way out, like literally, yeah. like to the you know, the next I- level. Like you see your doppelganger and you're like, oh, but that's it for me. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. want to know, since you did pick Larry, what was your feeling around him saying we're not the true lodge? Yeah. You know, I, that, that was like one of those things that I was like, it's so interesting. I kind of completely forgot about that. And then you're watching it again yes, and it's just too. sort of like setting it up for like, because they are the true lodge, right? That's what we sort of figure out at the end of season two. That's what, um, what's his face? The tall British guy, like kind of, he kind of figures that out when he's going through all the different uh, histories and stuff like that. And after living there and all that, you know. Um, so I don't know, it, I just thought of it as something that like, he, there was, how many things does he say to Ernie over the years that are like that, that Ernie just goes in one ear and out the other? And because you never really take him seriously, you know, if you took him seriously all the time, you would go insane, I think, to some degree. And so they sort of just let these things go. But there's always something to it. Like, you know, for a while, you think that he's kind of full of shit when it comes to um, Cheech Marin, you know, in his van, you know, and he's like, he'll be showing up at any minute, you know, and they definitely lead you to think that, like, he's kind of just... uh, not a bullshitter, but just sort of like not really or sort of insane or something. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't maybe not all there. Yeah. Right. It's not an intentional lie, but he's not all there. And so that felt like one of those things where he's sort of saying like, Oh, we're not the true lodge. And Ernie's like, "Mm -hmm, yeah, whatever. And um, And I I was like, I was like, wait, is he trying to protect them? He doesn't want, like if he's gone and they find out things, is he like plants? I don't know. I was, I was very. Well, he he couldn't be protected. Yeah, and in that regard, he could be protecting them from they are insolvent, right? And so yeah. if nobody knows what's sort of going on, they can't be held responsible for it as well. So he probably there might be some sort of protection for them as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's he's just such a you know, I kind of forgot just how much how important he is to the whole show, you know, because even in the first season, he's he's still sort of brief, you know, he kind of pops in and out. Um, and then, you know, and then dies. So like the Stark of, uh, of, uh, Lodge 49. Yeah, exactly. I think <laughs> yeah. he's going to be a lot larger of a character and then he's just kind of gone. Yeah. I, but uh, I also, I think it's, I think that like true, what's the true lodge? Like why do Dud and Liz, which is also like a bookend first and last episode have a very similar reaction when they, they cross the threshold. These are just things, unfortunately, that I think yeah. we don't get be, I mean, because they were supposed to come to fruition seasons three and maybe a seasons four, you know, I think those are part of the things where like, you know, having the show stop right when it really wasn't supposed to, you know, you can make a case that it still has an ending and, you know, la la la. I don't happen to subscribe to that 
viewpoint, I'm still bitter and annoyed, but you can. Um, and there's some poetry to the way it ends, but I think those are the kind of things that will, you know, we're, unless Jim decides to finish it in novels or something, which, you know, is sort of my secret hope, like we were sort of robbed of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not so secret, Jim. Are you listening? Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. <laughs> um, so. Oh, oh go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, this is kind of a tangent. We didn't get much of him. But throughout watching the first season, Scott, uh, you know, uh, Eric Allen Kramer, his Scott, Scott's character is, there's so many tragic moments in the entire show and that they're beautifully acted. But there's something so tragic about that character. Mm-hmm. that I just mm-hmm. think Eric Allen Kramer does a beautiful job. He's this guy who's trying to hold on to control so with, with you know, it sands in between your finger or between your fingers. And I think there's something beautiful and so sad about who he is. Mm-hmm. And he's like the ostensibly the villain of that, of that season, right? Or of, I guess, of the lodge. He's the villain of the lodge. Yeah. And so I think he's just such a, <laughs> a tragic, lovely character. And I think... Eric did such a great job. And if you watch again with that lens, you go like, oh, this guy, oh, you want, you want good things to happen to him, even though he's kind of doing shitty things, you know, like he can't, the woman he's with doesn't love him. And he knows it. And he knows it. And he keeps going with it because he doesn't know what to do. Because it's what he has, you know. The beautiful thing, Scott, I think, is that most characters like him in sort of real life would never uh, learn from something and then become they would just sort of always be that person, I think, right? right? He doesn't, so what's lovely about him that we really like, I think, is that he does learn from it. He does kind of give up on it. You you realize after a while that he knows the relationship is going on with Ernie, but he just loves Connie so much that he's willing to kind of deal with it. He still doesn't want to lose her, but eventually he kind of understands that that's uh, the way it's got to be. And in fact, if we, another thing we got robbed of, I really love that thing where he kind of pops up in that backyard yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Is there an extra love in his life? Is he going to find right. something else, right? Yeah, yeah. And that was another, you know, he didn't get a lot of screen time in this one, especially considering, that, you know, he's sort of... Oh, that obviously they, they share something because I went her goofy... Yeah. Sorry, we lost you for a second there, Bart. Yeah, you... Oh, yeah, I lost all... You went down into too, the yeah, uh, yeah. as-below world for a moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway I, yeah, I think I, I think I made the point. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say that... It, we don't get a lot of his character in this one. And even though he's at sort of top of the food chain character in the show, and we obviously get to know him much better, but uh, Britt, to your point earlier, the joke that they give him where he's like both the hard case. And then it's a joke that he does to dud. Like that was such that, that was such an amazing introduction to that character. Cause he's kind of like, he's kind of both, right. That's kind of the like, kind of, you know, hat comedy, drama, comedy, tragedy, part of Scott right there in that one like interaction. Yep. And Eric is a giant of a man. He's huge. And what yeah. the show doesn't seem to do, which I really appreciate because it's, it's a lovely dichotomy of having a character who's huge like that. And they don't rely on his, his size very much. They don't like lean into him being this big, it's he, not a shtick. Right. It's not a shtick. He's a very sensitive character. And I think that's, I just think that's interesting. That's a way more interesting way to go with a character like that than I've seen. And by the way, right. my daughter has just started watching uh, Good Luck Charlie. Right? <laughs> she's, she's eight. And uh, and so I was I was trying to watch episode one again. And then they came home from school and she and I was like, all right, go ahead. I think it's fine. There was like, they caught the, when Dud calls him a piece of shit, they, that, they were like, oh, you know, but. <laughs> 
um, her and her brother. Awesome. Yeah. But I was like, yeah, come on and watch it. I was like, look, it's from, it's the guy from Good Luck Charlie. So now she was, she's a big fan of Lodge 49 and wants to watch. Yeah. <laughs> I can't that, wait. That was one of my favorite moments at Long Beach, how that same Long Beach Convention Center was yeah. hosting the Comic Con. And I think it was like a, it was a dance, dance, or dance competition. Yeah. yeah. And so, he, you know, as he, cause it, and he's got some bona fides and other nerd culture that a comic book fan might recognize him as. So he would, to, to have like the tween set, the a thing there about the show he loved and probably some people that recognized him from playing Thor and stuff like that. Like it was such a like, it's sane serendipitous nexus of his fandom. It was very lodgy. Yeah. Very lodgy. <laughs> all right. Well, I think this brings us to the close of this episode, although we could talk all night. Mm-hmm. But Alex Britt, you know, how can people find you? What do you want to promote? You know, tell, you know, get, let the people find you. Uh, well, I think I'm most active on Instagram. Um, my handle's at Ophelia Grown Up. And you can watch Uncle Frank on Amazon. You should watch Lodge 49 a million times. Buy it on Amazon. Save the seasons. Tweet at the creators um, and tell them you love them. Tweet at Hulu. Tell them to uh, pick up season three. <laughs> that's what I want you to plug. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here. Um, but yeah, that's that's um, that's what's coming up right now. Um, and then we'll see, you know, what happens through all this pandemic stuff. Um, you know, I've got a call back tomorrow for a series regular. So fingers Funny. crossed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I might have another show to plug real soon. I'll mm-hmm. let you know. Mm-hmm. Thank you for asking. Um, I have uh, this movie called Lady of the Manor coming out. I, I actually have no idea. I think July, as far as we know. I think it was just sold, but uh, it'll be uh, small theatrical and then all a, a big streaming platform. One of the big two, I think. And uh, I'm really excited about it. It's like a, it's a dig and fart joke comedy with two female leads, which I don't think I've seen outside of like Broad City. And, and time travel. And, yeah, and time travel. All right, sounds and perfect. ghost. Nice. The lead is a ghost. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, my Instagram is at AlexKlein1, and it's mostly my sculpture stuff. And uh, an audition I did as uh, Quint from Jaws. That's how we spent quarantine. Yeah, we he learned that, and I filmed him, and then we put it on the internet. That is network. That's worth finding. Uh, Well, thank you so much. You know, we were a little rough around the edges. We hadn't actually podcast in almost a little under a year, and uh, you know, thanks for taking the plunge and being our first uh, fourth chair. Oh my god! Thank you for having us. What an honor! It's good to see you guys again. Yeah. All right. See you next week. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Hey guys. It's a cold hard world. These are cold hard times. These are cold hard times.